I'm going to start a new series this month called Contending for the Truth About Grace. And uh, I, I was going to do a whole series this month on the law. I will probably get there at some point. I will do, I mean, the law is going to come up in this series anyway, because grace and the law, I mean, we've got to talk about those two things and how they relate, obviously. But I just felt like the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, just there's a shift, and I think this is a real important series that we need to hit, and you'll see why in, in just a moment. For those of you who have all kinds of questions and stuff about the law, like I said, I will touch on it in this series. And uh, I also have like 80 pages, literally, it's 80-some pages now, it's a small book that I've been writing uh, on the law in the Old Testament over the last few months. If you have questions, I'll be glad to answer those and talk to you. I've got lots to talk about on that. But for now, we're going to talk about grace and contending for the truth about grace. And I just think this is a uh, hyper, super, mega important uh, series for us to hit right now because what you believe about grace is going to vastly impact your eternity. And I'm not overstating things. You'll see some passages in just a moment. It's going to vastly impact your eternity because what you misbelieve about grace can keep you from fearing God, can keep you from being able to resist sin and to pursue God zealously. And on a positive side, when we understand what grace is, it's going to help us and enable us to receive God's love and to walk in power and to walk in victory. But we need to both know what it isn't and we need to know what it is. And uh, we have a major problem in the church, which I'm going to unpack uh, not just in this church, I'm talking about in the Western church as a whole, Western Christianity. Uh, I think this is, is one of the key uh, problems. I don't want to oversimplify things. I think the Western church has many problems, but I think this is one of the key roots of it, which is a misunderstanding, a false grace. I believe that we have uh, layers. All of us have grown up in the church, and, and this is not just one or two people uh, who are preaching a false grace. This is not just one or two people writing false grace books or anything like this. This is just prevalent throughout the, throughout the entire church. There is just a layer upon layer of misunderstanding about grace that leads people in the Western church to feel confident and comfortable in their relationship with God even while they're sinning. And I think these layers of misunderstanding, are it's like a bl- heavy blanket of apathy which keeps people from pursuing holiness and repenting of their sins and being zealous in seeking after God and after the ways of righteousness. And so, uh, you know, at the end of this message series, not, not today's message, but in the second half of this series, in the later half of this month, we're going to talk about some of the amazing things that grace is. I mean, grace is, is phenomenal. And it's awesome, some of the things that God uh, will do for us and wants to do for us because of grace. Um, But before we get there, I first have to talk about what grace isn't, because we all have these glasses. We have these assumptions built up from from years of just receiving wrong teaching about grace. And if I just go straight to what grace is, um, without talking about what it isn't, these assumptions are going to cloud everything I talk to you about. And I fear that teaching that way is going to lead many of us down a wrong path. I honestly believe, and again, I'm going to show you this in just a moment in Scripture, I believe that wrong teaching about grace will end up leading many Christians into an eternity in hell. And I don't believe that's an overstatement. You'll see why I think that in just a moment. But before we do that, let's, uh, before we get to that, I'm going to read that passage right away. Why don't we just bow our heads and close our eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to really uh, speak to us here this morning and during this month. Uh, Jesus, I, I long to just speak about grace and about what you did for us on the cross in an accurate way. I just want to speak it accurately in spirit and speak it accurately in truth and from your word. And I pray that you would enable me to do that today and this month. 
and that we can have a full understanding of what the cross did for us and what the cross did not do for us. And Lord, we can come out of this series, Father, feeling loved by you, but also having a tremendously strong and healthy fear of the Lord. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do here today. In your name I pray. Amen. False grace is dangerous. I, today's message will be a bit uh, introductory. We're going to cover a bunch of things. Um, next week, I wanna, we're going to get very doctrinal, and I'm just going to go point by point through false assumptions about what grace is. And we're just going to knock them out so that by the end of this series, we're standing on a solid foundation, and then we can celebrate in spirit and truth what grace actually is in a way that promotes holy living, all right? Um, But I said before that I believe that false teaching about grace is leading many Christians into hell. And some of you are probably thinking, Chris, that's offensive, that you're exaggerating, you're overstating things. And so I want to read you a passage of scripture. It's one of Jesus' messages. And uh, we've looked at it many times here before, uh, here at Southland, but it's a passage of scripture that most of the Western church completely ignores uh, simply because they don't know what to do with it. And this, this passage actually sets the foundation for me, and this is the heart of why I think it's so important uh, to preach this series. And Jesus says this, all right? He says, not everyone, Matthew 7, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the most important messages in all of Scripture. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to just, again, we've looked at this before here at Southland, but our culture as a whole just does not pay attention to this. I think this message is so important. I think every Christian needs to regularly come back to these exact words. And Jesus warns, a sober warning. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord, who says they're a Christian, who thinks of themselves as a Christian, who believes Christian things, they think Jesus is their Lord. Not everyone who thinks they're a Christian, not everyone who thinks they're covered by grace, is actually covered by grace. And on that line alone, I think we have reason to really examine what grace is. We want to know what is grace because many people just think today, if I'm a Christian, grace covers it all. But Jesus says, not everyone who thinks they're covered by grace is actually covered by grace. And we need to do a careful study of the scripture to find out who's who, who's covered and who's not, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The issue is obedience, Grace does not cover everyone who calls themselves a Christian. It covers those who are obedient to the will of the Father in heaven. Now Jesus keeps going, verse 22, on that day, many, on that day, many, and this message just gets more and more serious as we go along. On that day, speaking of the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Okay, not some, not a few, not one or two, not a rare thing, many, a large portion of people who think they are Christians, who go to church, are going to stand before Jesus someday, many of them. Many means that many of us will know someone who fits into this passage. I mean, Jesus isn't going to be wrong. He's not going to have said many here and then at the end gone, oops, I exaggerated. He says many. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We went to cell. We went on a missions trip. We cast out demons in your name. We did all kinds of things in Jesus' name. We used Jesus' name all the time. Thought of ourselves as Christians and do many mighty works in your name. They're surprised. They are surprised. 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And uh, I know that some people maybe sometimes are thinking, you know, Chris, I wish just once you would preach, you know, a happy, positive message. And uh, I've done those. I mean, I just did a listening prayer series. I thought that was fairly happy. Okay? Um, But if you want to know my heart in this whole thing, I really don't care about being positive or negative. I just want to be accurate. And I just don't think it's loving to tell people who are in danger of judgment to say, hey, everything's good, let's be encouraged in the Lord when the Lord is trying to convict of sin. And Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I know a lot of people, again, we just ignore this passage. We don't want to think about it. And people look at that word lawlessness and they think, well, lawlessness, that sounds like a bad word. That couldn't be me. Lawlessness just means sin. 1 John 3, 4 says this, defines for us lawlessness. Scripture interprets Scripture. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So when Jesus says to a bunch of surprised Christians on Judgment Day, depart from you workers of lawlessness, he's talking to a bunch of people who thought Christian thoughts and believed some Christian doctrines in their head, but in their life they lived unrepentantly in gossip and slander and lust and immorality and taking advantage of people and being selfish and proud and worldly. He says, depart from you workers of lawlessness. Now, the the, the terrible thing, not even the sad thing, the scary thing about the false assumptions that are blanketing the church in the West about grace is that everybody says to any sin, they just say, grace covers it all. To which Jesus preaches here, grace does not cover a life lived in lawlessness. And as we go through this series, you're going to see that none of us is perfect. The point is not that we have to be perfect. The point is that we're moving in a direction towards righteousness and repenting of our sins and leaving our sins, not just believing I'm forgiven without repenting and turning from those sins. I think if more pastors and more churches would preach the message of true grace and the possibility of judgment, I believe that what would happen in the church is Christians would be gripped by the fear of the Lord, and Christians, would, we would get on our knees in fear of judgment, and we would repent and turn from our wicked ways, and less Christians would end up in hell. And you say, I mean, Jesus, no, Jesus didn't inspire fear like this. Chris, I mean, this is, this is you just doing this. Well, I just read to you his message, okay? I'm going to read to you a bunch more. But we have this idea about Jesus that he was, you know, just super nice and he came here to die so we could just continue in our sins and yet be confident in our relationship with God and that's just false grace. That's not what Jesus taught at all. It's not what Jesus taught at all. In fact, if you go through the scriptures, I'm going to take the next 10 or 15 minutes now and I want to do just a little survey of what Jesus actually taught about sin and about hell and about judgment. And what you're going to see is that actually one of the main pillars of Jesus' teaching, one of the pri- not the only thing he taught, but one of the primary pillars of his teaching was, had to do with hell and judgment of sin. And that was in his preaching to his followers. See, you and I need to be very careful that we don't just have assumptions in our head. We need to know how Jesus actually feels towards sin. We need to know how Jesus, what Jesus really teaches about fear and hell and grace, not just what someone else told us. So let's look at, let's do a little survey here. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. Excuse me. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends. So this is Jesus talking to his friends now, okay? 
I tell you, my friends, he's not speaking to Pharisees here. He's not speaking to, the Ro- to Romans or Roman soldiers. He's not speaking to people who don't believe in him. He's speaking to his friends, the people who love and follow him. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Well, so far, so good, right? Hey, that's the Jesus we know in the West. Don't fear anything. And unfortunately, he kept talking, right? In verse 5, he said this, but I will show you whom you should fear. I will show you whom you should fear. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his friends here. I will show you whom you should fear. This is a command. Fear him who, after the killing killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I'll tell you whom you should fear. See, Jesus is preaching this passage to believers who are under pressure to leave the path of righteousness. And whatever that pressure is, whether it's coming from persecution, you're under pressure to leave the way of Christ because of persecution. Or maybe you're under pressure to leave the way of righteousness because of peer pressure or because of cultural pressure. It's just weird to live the path of righteousness. But whatever it is, you're under pressure to leave the path of righteousness and you're afraid. That's why it's pressure. You're afraid of facing persecution. You're afraid of being mocked. You're afraid of being left out. You're afraid of not having any friends. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of any of those things that are pressuring you to leave the path of righteousness. I'll tell you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, who he, he won't just make fun of you. Like these guys, they can make fun of you. They can persecute you. They can hurt your body. Don't fear them. Fear him who, if you do leave the path of righteousness because of their pressure, can throw you into hell after you die. I mean, that's fear of consequences coming from Jesus. It's a core part of his message. Matthew chapter 5, 29 to 30. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking about hell, having a healthy fear of sin. See, Christians today, grace covers it all. When we sin, we don't tremble. When we sin, we don't feel remorse. We feel Phew! Phew! God forgave that. Phew! Jesus teaches a little bit of a different response to sin in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, one of the most important passages of Scripture in the Bible. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I wonder if Jesus would have had any kind of a following if he would have been writing books now. Okay? Or preaching now. He wouldn't have had much of a following. Let me tell you that. I mean, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Just, there it goes. Better to, better to not have that eye. Better to cut the hand off than for that thing that's causing you to sin to drag you into hell. And if, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is not a throwaway portion of Jesus' teaching. This is all of Jesus' teaching. This comes up in several different places in the gospel. Totally different sermon. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. He goes into even more gruesome detail on the things you should cut off if they cause you to sin. And yet, that is not at all the message that we get from the, the grace teachers of today and the grace assumptions of our culture today. The grace assumptions of our culture today are, thank goodness it's covered by grace. Jesus says, do not be so casual about your sin. You cut out, you cut out to the radical Nth degree, you cut out whatever is causing you to sin because that thing is not worth it if it drags you all the way down into hell. Again, this is Jesus preaching to his followers. Never once, I challenge you this week to go through the Gospels. I really do. I challenge you. Go through the Gospels with, an eye, with eyes looking for what does Jesus say about sin? What does Jesus say about judgment? 
And what you're going to find is that never once, never once in any of Jesus' teaching does he ever give the idea that a person can sin and not face judgment. Never once. Never once does he give the idea that becoming a follower of his means you can continue in sin because you're unforgiven. In all of his teachings, sin is very, very serious and can result in severe judgment if it is not turned from. And again, as we're going through this series, I'm going to repeat this again and again and again. It is not perfection. None of us will reach perfection in this lifetime. But it's this casual idea that I can be confident in my relationship with God while I'm sinning without repentance, which is a false grace. Let me show you some of Jesus' discipleship. I want to show you, again, this just, I wanted to do a survey here of Jesus' teaching on sin. I want to show you uh, how Jesus discipled people. When people, uh, you know, uh, believed in him and had their sins forgiven, I want to show you what he told them and how the fact that for Jesus, discipleship for believers really centered on, in a large part, leaving your life of sin. And so we have a bunch of famous stories. John chapter 8 is the story of the adulterous woman. And we all know that story, right? Famous story. Uh, The Pharisees catch this woman. I don't know if they catch her in the act. I don't know how they caught her. But anyway, adultery. So they know somehow she's an adulterer. And they bring her to, to Jesus and I just love, I love reading the Gospels. And, and they bring her to Jesus and they're going to trap him again, right? They're always trying to trap him. And they think they have him between a rock and a hard place. They think if he says this, we have him. And if he says this, we have him. And I, yeah, we got him. And then he says this and he has them. And I, oh, and I love it. He does it over and over to them, okay? So they bring him this woman and they say, the law of Moses said we should stone her. And they want to see what he's going to say. And, uh, and he bends down in the, in the sand, right? And he draws some things and boy, would I love to know what he drew there. I mean, when he comes back, that's one of the questions on my list. Jesus, what did you write in the sand, all right? But anyway, he writes in the sand, and then he stands up, and as only Jesus can do, he says, um, yeah, okay, we should, we should stone her. Uh, let him who has no sin throw the first stone, right? Oof. All the energy goes out of this party, right? And they slink away, starting with the oldest ones first, okay? And I want to just, we'll just pick up on a story here. Let's read a few verses. And I want to then show you, now how does Jesus disciple this woman when it's done? Okay, let's look at this. Again, he, Jesus, stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. So he has just forgiven her of her sins. She's forgiven. Okay? Amazing thing. Okay? Now what would you do with this woman, right? What do we do with new believers? Okay? If you had a new believer in front of you and you had to disciple them and you had only 15 minutes and after that you might never see them again, what would you do with that person? I know many of us would do, you know, you pull out your identity in Christ sheet, Right? And by the way, I'm not making fun of identity in Christ. That's amazing stuff. We use it here. It's wonderful for ministry. Great truth. Very good for discipleship. But that's not what Jesus does with this woman. He doesn't tell her who she is in him. And some of you are going, I know, I know, I know what I would do if I just had one piece of discipleship advice to give. I would say to them, never forget that God loves you. Oh, wonderful truth to tell new believers. We need to tell new believers that. God does love each one of us here. He puts deep, deep value on us. He loves us and wants none of us to have to go to hell. And it's a wonderful thing to tell new believers. And you know what? Jesus doesn't say that to this woman either. Jesus gives her one piece of discipleship advice, and I want you to notice what it is. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a core part 
This is a core part, component, pillar of Jesus' discipleship in story after story after story in the Gospels is not, okay, identity in Christ, good stuff, God loves you, good stuff, yes, yes, yes. But when was the last time we started telling people, leave your life of sin? See, we've actually lost our way in the West. We've lost our way in the West. This is a big part of what it means to be a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not saying a little prayer and now I can live forever and not have to worry about going to hell. No. A big part of what it means by definition to be a follower of Jesus is that we leave our life of sin. And if we don't do that, then there's a very good chance that we're not actually a Christian. And, no ma- and whether we're a Christian or not, there's for sure to be some kind of serious consequence if we don't leave our life of sin. And I want to show you that because that's also part of Jesus' discipleship plan. John chapter 5 is another great and famous discipleship story of Jesus. And it's the story of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And a man has been paralyzed for 38 years. And, he, and, and in those days, I mean, I mean, it's all, I mean even now, to be paralyzed is, is a serious handicap in life. Um, but in those days, there was no support systems for these people. I mean, they had a horrible life just living on the streets and barely getting by on whatever food people would kind of drop for them. As this man had been a, a, an, an invalid for 38 years, Jesus finds him at the pool of Bethesda, and it's famous story. He says, pick up your mat and walk. And then everybody is just stunned. The guy gets up, picks up his mat. And in all the rush and the hubbub, Jesus and this man get separated, and Jesus isn't able to give him any discipleship advice. And so they get, and, but the thing, I love this story. You can read it, John chapter 5. During the week, I'm going to read you a couple of verses in just a moment right at the end, but I don't have time to read the whole thing. But what I really love about this story is that after they get separated, so Jesus can't talk to this guy after he heals him, Jesus goes looking for him. I love that. What a great picture of what Jesus does for us. He just loves each one of us. He goes looking for us. And he goes looking for this man at the temple that evening because he's not satisfied just to heal his body. He wants to heal his insides. And so Jesus seeks out this healed man. And again, I want you to notice what he says to him. He doesn't track him down and say, hey, never forget that God loves you. Yes, very important. We need to tell people that. That's not what Jesus tells this guy. He says this, later Jesus found him at the temple. So Jesus is looking for him. Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I mean, what? Jesus did not just say that, right? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We don't tell that to people, do we? Who are we trying to emulate anyway? You know, we're modeling our discipleship on things that people are selling us and telling us, and we're not following the one. We're Christians. We're supposed to be like him. And you know, Jesus did not make a mistake here. It's not like he went to bed that night and go, oh, shoot. Why did I tell him stop sinning or something worse may happen to you? I mean... What a terrible thing to say, right? Jesus didn't lie there and go, oh, I forgot to tell him God loves him. No. He's the son of God. He was very intentional, knew exactly what he was doing, and he was giving him the most important of the most important. He said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. You will find this right through the Gospels. Jesus had a very simple core message. And again, there were other things he taught as well. This isn't the only thing he taught, but it's one of the pillars of everything Jesus talked about and did when he was with people. And it was just a very simple message. It, it consisted of two parts, stop sinning or else. Stop sinning or else. Key, simple part, core message of Jesus. Now, of course, I know many people 
today would be sitting here listening to this, and, they would, and, it, and if I would have named this message, Stop Sinning or Else, they would say, you are not a grace preacher. You are a law preacher. But you can call me whatever names you want. I just want to be a Jesus preacher. Jesus said, Stop Sinning or Else, core part of his message. And Jesus is grace. He's the author of grace. Any definition of grace that we come up with that excludes the message and the spirit of stop sinning or else is not true biblical grace. It's made up false grace. And it doesn't matter how it's dressed up and packaged. See, because the Bible, I'm going to go to the next point here now. The Bible tells us that in the end times, there will be many false teachers who pervert grace. And the Bible names grace in particular as one of the doctrines that many people will pervert in the last days. And I want to just show you this in Jude here, Jude verses 3 to 4. By the way, there's many passages, I can't get to them all. So if you want to see some other passages on this that I won't get to today, write down in your notes right now. Oh, I'm giving you lots of scripture. Just basically read the whole Bible this week, right? But anyway, Second <laughs> uh, Peter. So read through all the Gospels. I already told you to do that. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Happy little chapter uh, about false teachers and heresies in the last days. But anyway, uh, Jude verses, let's look at the book of Jude now a little bit, okay? False teachers are going to pervert grace. Jude verses 3 to 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, okay? I was eager. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You know, I can identify with this. Jude says, I wanted to write you a happy letter about all the things we have in common in Christ. I wanted to write you a happy letter about the blessings and the grace and the forgiveness and all that stuff. I was just about to write it too, and I found I had to change my tone. And why does he have to change his tone? Here's why. Verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Certain men have secretly slipped in among you. The ESV translation says, uh, uh, crept in unnoticed. And the first thing I want you to know about these false teachers is they are not, I mean, there's different levels of false teachers. There's one level of false teacher which is obvious. They just say, Jesus isn't the only way to God. And, it, and it's Hinduism, it's this, it's that. They're, no, Christians don't follow them. They're false teachers, but they're obvious. There's another group, and this is what Judas is talking about, this is what Peter is talking about. Paul talks about them as well in First and Second Timothy, and I can't get to all the passages. But there's, another, there's other groups of false teachers who are from within the church. They creep in unnoticed. They're from within. They don't say Jesus isn't the only way to to salvation. They will say Jesus is the only way to salvation. They'll talk about the name of Jesus and they'll talk about grace. And they'll use passages of scripture. They creep in unnoticed from inside the body. But they do something very wicked and that is they change the grace of God into a license for immorality. And they give Christians a license to sin. Now you say, no, 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 Chris, these are not Christians because it says there at the end that they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Not with their mouths, they don't. I'll show you how they deny him as Lord. If we go to Titus 1.16, Paul is also talking about this problem. He's talking to a different group of people than Jude is, but the principle holds the same. He says this in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God with their mouths, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's go back to Jude 3 to 4. So what do these false teachers do? They change the grace of God. They talk about Jesus and they talk about grace. 
sounds very, very spiritual. Must be a Christian. They might have a big ministry. The Bible is very clear that many people will follow these people in the last days. And they're going to talk about grace, but they're going to change it into a license for sin. You say, how do they do that? Let me tell you what they don't do. They don't stand up on stage and say, it's okay to sin. Because we'd all go, ugh. And nobody would follow them. It would be too obvious. They don't get up and say, let's all go out and commit adultery. Let's all go out and lie and cheat and steal. They don't do any of that. Nobody would follow them. No self-respecting Christian would follow that ministry. That's not how they do it. They creep in secretly and unnoticed. So you say, well, how do they change the grace of God into a license for immorality and for sin? And there's many ways. And next week we're going to start to knock out the different doctrines they teach that give Christians a license for sin. Let me just look at one. One of the first things they do is they take out any possibility of judgment and wrath for Christians who sin. They just take out the potential for judgment. And they say, you can sin, you can do whatever you want, you shouldn't, but if you do, don't worry about it, nothing bad's going to happen to you. And by taking away consequences, they hand Christians a license for immorality. Say, show me this in the scripture. I'm glad you asked. Let's keep going. Verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you. Now, why is he having to remind this church of something? He's having to remind them of something because they've obviously forgotten something. Okay, so he's writing them this letter because there's false teachers who have twisted the message of grace into a license for immorality. And so he says, and so I have to write this letter to remind you. These false teachers have caused you to forget something very important. Now, what is it that he's going to remind them of? And I'm going to show you right away. It's consequences. He writes this letter, and the first thing he does, he says, these false teachers have made you think there's no consequences for sin, so let me remind you of something very, very important to the Christian faith and your walk with God. There are consequences. Let's see this. I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. Yay! But later destroyed those who did not believe. Ooh, right? I want to remind you, this is important, it's coming from Jude. False teachers are giving you a license to sin. Let me remind you of something they've made you forget. There are consequences for sin. For example, God saved a bunch of people out of Egypt, just like he delivered you out of bondage, he delivered them out of bondage. And later, they turned around in in disbelief and disobedience, and he destroyed them. And now Jude's going to go on. He's going to expand on this point. He's going to make the point that nobody is exempt from consequences. Verse 6, even the angels aren't. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so Jude says, one of the most important things I need to remind you of that these false teachers of grace have caused you to forget is that God does punish people. He may deliver you, but then if you turn back in disobedience and disbelief on him, he will destroy and punish you again. And uh, and you can read the rest of the book of Jude, so there's more Bible reading for you to do, but you can read the rest of this happy little book, and he expounds on this point. That's what the whole book of Jude is. In fact, at the end of the book, and I'm going I'm to skip those next couple of verses, uh, Charmaine, I don't have time, but in verses 22 to 23, you can look these up too. He, Jude gives some advice to Christians who are ministering to other people. And he actually says that when you minister to people who are in sin, you should show them mercy with fear. Fear, lest the sins that you are ministering to, you become entangled and caught up in them yourself. Jude had a very, very 
serious perspective about the consequences of sin. So serious that he says we should minister to people with a little tinge of fear lest we be caught up in the same sins they're in. Sin is a serious thing in the Bible. But you know, we don't like consequences in our culture. It's not just a Christian culture. It's our whole Western culture. We hate consequences. I mean, no one's ever responsible for anything they did. No one should ever be punished or disciplined. It all just goes back to various things and dysfunctionality in our youth and blah, blah, blah. And so we're just all, it's just grace, grace. And it's just got caught up into us in the church as well. And so we accumulate for ourselves teachers who will speak things to us that agree with what we want to hear. That's the second Timothy. Again, there's so many passages about this false teaching stuff. The second half of the New Testament is littered with warning after warning after warning after warning against false teaching like this. And I'll just show you uh, one passage here, 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. Apostle Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These false teachers will soothe people's itching ears. They will teach doctrines that feel good. They will teach, uh, you know, they will say peace when there is no peace. They will say blessing when there is no blessing. They will tell people they are forgiven when they are in danger of judgment. And they will just pat people on the back as they just kind of smile through life. Oh, everything's all good. And then, oh, Matthew 7, 21, 23, the day of judgment. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? Were we not covered by grace? I thought we were. Everybody told me I was. False teachers. Paul gave Timothy instructions as to how to preach good doctrine in just the verse before this. And, uh, and so this is just the verse before 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. And I could add in there, preach the whole word. Because just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, all scripture, all of it is, and then I'm just paraphrasing now, but useful and necessary for discipling. And one of the signs of a false teacher is that they teach just a few chapters and a few books from here and there. They've got a few favorite chapters out of Paul's epistles, but they never preach the Old Testament or Revelation or Jude or the Peters or James. They don't like any of those books. And one of the ways to not have an imbalance, see, because people say to me, how can this be a false teaching? They quote scripture. All false teachers quote scripture. That's what Peter says too there. We'll look at that verse next week. But he says they twist the scriptures. They use verses, but they just use part of them and then they ignore a big chunk. Paul says to Timothy, we need to preach the whole word. Genesis through Revelation. Old and new. Gospels, epistles, and all of them. And when we do, this is what comes out of it. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort reproving and rebuking. And many of these ministries now, they have built up doctrines around the importance of just being positive, 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 encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. And it sounds so great and it sounds so loving and it isn't loving. It is not loving to say things are okay for people when they're not okay. So I want to just start into kind of what we want to do next week. Next week we're going to expose a bunch of these false doctrines, but I got a bit of time here, and so I'm going to just do one right now, right at the end. And, uh, and so I want to just take on one of the half-truths, and next week we're going to take on a couple of big ones, just so you know what's coming next week. I want to talk about what does it mean that there's no condemnation in Christ, because we all quote that all the time. I'm going to talk about that next week. I'm also going to talk about next week, what does it mean that God sees us as holy in Christ, because we all heard that one too. I want to show you what that means. Those, both of those are wonderful promises 
And both of them come with very big ifs, the Bible clearly teaches. Um, But just for today, I just want to take on one of the false assumptions, and it's a half-truth. Many of these are not blatant lies, they're half-truths. And half-truths are just as dangerous as lies in many cases, because by having an element of the truth, it makes people latch on to it. And yet by missing the other part of the truth, it becomes deadly. But here's a half-truth I want to deal with today in the last part of this message is this. If you just focus on the love of God and the grace of God, you won't want to sin anymore. I mean, doesn't that just sound so true? I've heard it probably hundreds of times in various ways, in books, in, in conversations. I mean, if, we, if you just focus on the love of God and the grace of God, uh, you, you won't want to sin anymore, Chris. Chris, you can stop talking about judgment and wrath, okay? I mean, I know it's in the Bible, I can't explain that, but you should stop talking about it, and let's just talk about love and grace because it's so freeing when people stop thinking about this and they start thinking about that, and they just won't want to sin anymore. And it's not a lie, it's a half-truth. I mean, it is true, the love of God, and we're going to talk about that a lot in the second half of this series. The love of God is amazing. The fact that God so deeply pursues and values each one of us here is an incredible truth. Yes. Awesome. But it is not true that all you need in order to be victorious in your life is a revelation of God's love. And even though it sounds so spiritual, the fact of the matter is, and I've been talking to people about this recently, I've been challenging people on this when they say it to me, and I've been telling them, I say, no, it sounds really good to say that. It sounds so spiritual that nobody will ever say no to you, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible says two things are necessary in order to live an overcoming a victorious life. The love of God and the fear of God. Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the what? Not by the, not by the love of God. The Bible, I mean, it sounds great again. Yes, and the more of a revelation you get of God's love, you will want to sin less. But you need more than a revelation of God's love. Because the Bible says it's not by the revelation of God's love, however spiritual that might sound when someone says it to you. The Bible says it is by the fear of the Lord that you turn away from evil. And turning away from evil is one of the most important things you can do in your Christian life. By the fear of the Lord. See, and this is why I think one of the most dangerous things about the false grace teaching and assumptions that are layered on the Western church today, one of the most dangerous things is that it attacks the pillar of the fear of the Lord and takes it out of people's lives. And the Bible says there's two. And, and the, moment you, the moment you take out the fear of the Lord, you're taking off a person's leg. They're crippled in the realm of the Spirit. To be strong and vibrant and healthy in, in the realm of the Spirit, you need the fear of God and the love of God. Let me show you this in the New Testament as well. Paul said this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. In other words, please God. In other words, do right. So that's a pretty noble goal Paul has. Wherever we are, we want to do right. Oh, now that is a good thing to want. That's actually what all of us Christians should want. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be someone whose aim is to do what is right. You ever thought about that? Most of us just think of Christian, Christianity as, I'm not going to hell. No, being a Christian means your aim is to please God and do right. Now, where does Paul get this motivation for this? Let's see how, what motivates him to have that aim. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Whoa. 
Paul talks a lot about the love of God, and it's so important, the love of God. And again, we're going to get there. But that's not Paul's motivation here in this passage for why he pursues to do right every day of his life. The reason in this passage that he gives a primary motivating factor in his life for why he wants to do right every day is because he's constantly thinking about one fact, that someday he will stand before Jesus in his breathtaking awe-inspiring holy presence and have to give an account of the things he did while he was in the body, both good and evil. And because he thinks about that a lot, it motivates him to do right because of what feeling? Look at this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul knew the fear of the Lord. He feared the Lord because he fears the day of judgment when he has to stand and give an account. But again, the grace teachers of our day, they hear me speaking this and they go, that's not grace, talking about judgment and the fear of the Lord. That's Paul's teaching. That's Jesus' teaching. That's true grace. Any definition of grace that does not include fear of judgment, that takes out consequences, is a false definition of grace. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Since we have these promises, this is Paul again, just a little over a chapter later. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness. Now, where's holiness coming from? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness is built on the leg of fear of God. And one of the most profound uh, stories I ever heard on this subject, I shared it once a couple years ago, and I took it from uh, uh, one of John Bevere's books, and it's just, uh, I think it just illustrates so good I'll just share it again. And uh, many of you will know who Jim Baker is. If you're, I'm 32, I'm going to be turning 33 this month. And so if you're older than me, you'll know who that is probably. And if you're younger, maybe not. But he was uh, a huge, he had a huge televangelism uh, ministry in the 80s. And they were winning lots of people to Christ. And, and uh, he also ran in the circles with many of the prosperity teachers that are still famous today. Later, by the way, after he got out of jail, he wrote a book that said, I was wrong, in which he refuted all the prosperity theology he had been teaching. But anyway, um, so he had this huge ministry, winning, and he was winning people to Christ, and, and big ministry, and pulling in lots of money, and, but he was leading a double life. And in the mid-1980s, he, was in, he, he, was embe- he embezzled hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from his ministry for his own personal use. And he also committed adultery and a bunch of other stuff. And, and when the authorities caught him, they put him in jail for, I think his sentence was eight years. He might have gotten out a little earlier, but it was a long time. It was very serious. And uh, after he'd been, in, and it was huge black eye on Christianity. I mean, the whole world was laughing at us. See, you guys are no different than we are. And uh, anyway, after he'd been in prison for a year, uh, John Bevere, who's written a number of books, we have a number of his books here in the library, but uh, John Bevere went and visited him in prison. And and in that interview, in that visit, Jim Baker said some things that are just, I mean, they're just imprinted on my heart, just profound. And one of the first things he said to John was this, uh, John came to visit him, and uh, and, uh, Jim said, uh, you know, John, my being in prison here is not the judgment of God, it's the mercy of God. And John said, well, how how do you figure that? He said, because if I would have kept living the way I was living and had not got caught, I would have gone to hell. Whoa, what? I mean, you're a preacher, you believe in Jesus. He says, no, no, I would have gone to hell if I would have kept living this way. And then John asked him the question. He said, um, I mean, what, so tell me, Jim. Like, we need to know so we can learn from this. When did you stop loving Jesus? And Jim said, John, you don't get it. I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing him. That's what he said. Oof. Never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing him. 
But the grace teachers today are giving Christians a license to sin by teaching grace in such a way that there is no more fear of the wrath of God or judgment. Oh, I said a prayer, I'm good to go. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. Becoming a Christian, part of what the definition of being a follower of Jesus is, not just that you prayed to receive him, that's a wonderful step, but that, if that's all you ever did and you didn't turn from your sins radically, cutting out those things from your life, that were pulling you into sin, and repenting when you fall back into it, as we all do, then you are not a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. And of course, there's an objection. I, I just have time here to deal with one objection. And right away, I know the, the objection is uh, someone goes, you know, oh, well, what about perfect love casts out fear, right? I mean, because you're talking about fear of the Lord and all this sort of stuff, but uh, the objectors have their one verse from 1 John chapter 4, you know, perfect love casts out fear, and they use that one verse, they tack it up on the bulletin board, and they use that verse to cut up dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures that talk about fearing God. And they say, well, because of this verse, I don't have to listen to this one, and because of this verse, I don't have to listen to this one. And to anytime you want to talk about the fear of the Lord, they say, perfect love casts out fear. And we've all heard that statement. In fact, that statement, perfect love casts out fear, has been repeated so often that most of us don't know where it is, and we don't know actually what the passage says. And so I want to take you and I, I mean, this to me is just fun. I love actually looking at what the Bible actually says. And so let's go to 1 John 4, 16 to 18. I want to read you the passage. Perfect love casts out fear. And let's find out what it actually says. And let's start, rather than just jumping straight to the statement, perfect love casts out fear, let's look at the context a little bit and see what he's saying in the verses leading up to it. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. Now, when John is saying this, okay, he's, he, he's summarizing an argument he has made like half a dozen times in the book. Okay, read 1 John this week too, okay, along with everything else. Just mark that down. 1 John, Jude, and all the Gospels, okay, and 2 Peter too. But anyway, uh, 1 John, the entire book, one of the main themes over and over and over again of 1 John is how do you know if you're a Christian? So if, you, if you're here today and you want to have assurance that you are saved, read 1 John. Because he gives a whole bunch of different tests how to know if you're really a Christian. And one of the tests that comes up over and over and over again is, if you are a Christian, that means you love people. If you don't love people, it means you don't have God's love in you. So you can say that you believe in God, you can say you're a Christian, you can do all kinds of Christian things, but if you don't, if you're not a loving person, if you're not kind, if you're not serving, if you're not humble, if you are self-centered and worldly and critical and negative, then the love of God is not in you no matter what you believe up here. That's a big theme and preaching in 1 John. And so here he just kind of summarizes. He says, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love. What does it mean to abide in love? Whoever is a loving person, they abide in love. They, in all of their interactions with people, with their spouse and at work, they are loving, they are humble, they are serving. They're godly. They abide in love. Now people who abide in love with their actions, they love, they're a loving person, that person is abiding in God. See, a lot of us, we think of abiding in Christ as different from abiding in love. The two are the same, John preaches. I mean, it doesn't matter how much time you spend in prayer and reading your Bible, that's not abiding in Christ if you're not loving people when you leave the prayer time. Abiding in Christ is loving people. So he says, so this passage is being written to people who are loving. So it's applying to, not people who are just selfish and living however they want. And God abides in him. Now let's keep going here. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. Now this is just a stunning and amazing promise. Wonderful passage. 
By this is love perfected in us. How is love perfected in us? As I abide in love. In other words, as I am practically loving other people. I don't just say I love. I don't just talk about being a Christian. But I'm actually becoming a loving person. As I am actually loving people. I am generous. I am kind. I respond to harshness with kindness. I'm, I'm patient. I'm loving. I'm all these things. As I am doing that, I'm actually abiding in God. And as, as, as I'm loving people and abiding in God, he begins a process called perfecting love in me. So I'm not perfect, but love is being perfected in me. What does that mean? That means if I'm actually a Christian, I can look back at my life and I can say, my life, I'm a little more loving this month than I was last month. Because I've been taking steps to be a loving, patient, kind, gentle, generous, good person. And as I've been doing that, I've been abiding in God. He's been working his love in me. I can see I'm, I've made some advance, advancements since last month, since last year. My character is improving. His love is being perfected in me. I'm changing. I'm not perfect. I'm moving in a direction. Now, look what happens because of that. So that then, if his love, if you see that process at work in you, you're not perfect, but you can see the process at work, so that then we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Oh, wait a minute. I have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because I am being perfected in love. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Why am I not afraid on the day of judgment? I'm not just blindly not afraid. I don't have to be afraid on the day of judgment because Jesus loves me. No, the reason I don't have to be afraid is because I act here in this world like he is. I behave properly. Therefore, I have confidence on the day of judgment because I've been doing right. Let me illustrate this for you for just a moment, and then we're going to finish this passage. You know, I grew up in a great home. I have an amazing dad. And he loved us and he spanked us. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm better for it. He loved us and he spanked us. And, uh, and so I never feared. I mean, he was so loving. I mean, I never feared dad coming home at night. I mean, it was, it was great when dad came home. I never feared that. He's a loving dad. Okay? If I was behaving properly right? That's a big if. I remember one time the four of us were downstairs. I don't know what kind of a spirit came over us, okay? We had company over and we were, the four of us, the kids were, were pounding on the, on the furnace for some reason, which made a kind of a hellish noise throughout the house. And, and, uh, and dad came down very graciously. He just said, uh, um, stop that. He didn't say please. didn't say thank you. He just said, uh, stop that. And, and so we did. But like I said, there was some kind of a stronghold. There was a demon in that place. <laughs> that night but because for some reason it just slipped our minds and a few minutes later we were pounding on the furnace again and i'll never forget he comes down very very calmly very very calmly in fact a little too calmly if you know what i'm saying and he said i'm going to deal with you when the company's gone and a ripple of terror just swept through the ranks it was just it was fear why was there fear the fear had nothing to do with his love his love was constant for us every day whether or not we had fear of him had nothing to do with his love for us, it had to do with how we were behaving. It's the same thing here. Those of us who are being perfected in love and are living here in this world like he is can have confidence. Yes, we're not perfect. We repent and we confess our sins when we do them, but we're moving in a direction and we're living as he lived. If we do that, we have confidence on the day of judgment because that perfect love casts out fear. 
Now, do you see how different that is from the way the grace teachers of our day are teaching this passage? They leave out verses 16 and 17 in the rest of the book. They just go to those words, perfect love casts out fear, and they teach it this way. They teach, because Jesus loves you with a perfect love, you have nothing to fear from him because he would never judge you. He loves you too much for that. Do you see how different that is from you don't have to fear because you've been living like he is? I can refute the second interpretation of it as false in just 30 seconds. Let me ask you a couple questions. First of all, does God love every human being on earth? Yes, every single one. God does not want a single human being on earth to have to go to hell. And yet it's going to happen, isn't it? See, does the fact that God loves every single human being on earth and every single one of you here today, does the fact that he loves us all with an immense, perfect love mean that nobody's going to go to hell? No. So that means then that there are going to be millions, actually billions of people who are going to stand before Jesus someday and he loves those people perfectly. He loves them deeply and yet he's going to cast them into hell, isn't he? This is all true. Nothing I've said here so far is untrue, not even debatable. Okay? So that means then that there are a lot of people, again, millions and billions of people who are deeply loved by God who should fear judgment, yes? So how can these grace teachers of our day teach that perfect love drives out fear in the sense that because God loves you, you don't have to fear? God loves lots of people and lots of people have to fear. It's not talking about God's love. His love is the constant. It's our response to that love that determines whether or not we should fear. Perfect love casts out fear is as I am perfected in his love, I grow more and more confident to stand before him because there's nothing for him to judge. I'll just prove this to you to finish this message. Two more passages from 1 John, but that interpretation is confirmed throughout the entire book. 1 John 3, 16 to 19. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us love in our actions, not just talk about being Christians and talk about loving. No, no. Indeed, we're actually loving people. And by this, by what? By our deeds of love. By being able to look back in our lives and see that there is growth in deeds of love by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. What gets rid of fear? A revelation of God's love? Yeah, that can help. More importantly, a revelation of his love in your life where you look back and you see that you are becoming loving, I'm reassured. People who are not walking in love and not walking in righteousness have no confidence or a reason from the Bible to be reassured they should fear. They should fear. 1 John 2, 28 to 29. And now little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. How do we have confidence about Jesus? And not shrink in shame, in from him in shame at his coming. Here's how you do it, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, I mean, Jesus is righteous, right? He lived righteous. He told the truth. He did right. He was kind. He was servant. He was humble. So if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure. Here's how you can be sure. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you are not practicing righteousness, then you are not sure, and you should have fear. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and we'll continue this series next week. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I pray that we can, by the power of your Spirit and by your grace, turn from our sins with the fear of the Lord.
and begin to live and walk in proper, true grace, Lord, which means to turn away from everything wicked and unrighteous and to begin to become perfected in love. And Jesus, I pray that as you perfect us in love, Jesus, that more and more we're going to have confidence that we can see the changes you're making in our lives. And by looking at the changes you made in our lives, we can have confidence to stand before you on the day of judgment that you have indeed saved us. And I thank you for what you're going to do in and through this series. In your name we pray. Amen.